In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. Amen. The Acts of the Apostles describe Stephen as, quote, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. He was one of the seven deacons ordained by the apostles to meet the need of distributing alms and provisions to widows in the early ministry of the church. After his ordination, though, St. Stephen quickly proved himself capable of more than this, of teaching and preaching and reasoning with many concerning Jesus as the Christ of Israel. His giftings, however, exasperated those who opposed his message and quickly drew the attention of the religious authorities of Jerusalem, the same council that had conspired to kill Jesus. Jerusalem, the city that had gathered together all too recently to crucify her Messiah, now took aim at young Deacon Stephen. This was not a new habit. Jerusalem knew a long and adversarial history with those whom God had sent to her, long before the events of Christ's passion. The first reading at morning prayer today calls us back to the last days of Judah before the captivity. The faithful and stalwart priest Jehoiada had successfully called Jerusalem from many idolatrous practices, had given the city a bit more time before judgment fell upon it. And yet, after his death, the city's leaders immediately relapsed into allowing pagan idols to rise up in the temple city, even in the temple itself. Jehoiada's son, the prophet Zechariah, became filled with zeal and the spirit of God and called the city back to their recent faithfulness. The response? Jerusalem falsely accused Zechariah of blasphemy and stoned him to death in the courts of the temple itself. At the moment of his death, recorded in 2 Chronicles 24, Zechariah prayed, quote, The Lord, look on this and repay. The manner of Zechariah's death follows a recurring motif present through the Old Testament. A righteous, suffering servant entrusts themselves and the right of their own vengeance to God, expecting that God will vindicate the righteous and will judge the wicked. Innocence under persecution is preserved by patient endurance and a refusal to be stained with sin by seeking retribution. Zechariah's prayer is one of assigning vengeance to God, who listens to the voice of innocent blood when it is spilled. And God always hears that voice, as he did in the wake of the first murder in Genesis, telling Cain, quote, What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood cries to me from the ground. So now you are cursed from the earth, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. Or again, as Jeremiah the prophet said to the priests of Jerusalem, quote, As for me, here I am. I am in your hand. Do to me as seems good and proper to you. But know for certain that if you put me to death, you will surely bring innocent blood on yourselves, on this city, and on its inhabitants. 
Such was the habit of Jerusalem that our Lord saw fit to lament over it in chapter 23 of Matthew's gospel, saying, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those that God sends to her. The ministry of Jesus was no exception. In the Passion, Jesus would epitomize the body count of prophetic suffering in the trail of Israel's refusal to repent. Jesus' suffering would bring fully to light the sin of Israel's rejection of God's righteousness. His death would cement Jerusalem's hardness of heart as the city's fatal flaw through all of its final years. As Jesus said of the city, quote, For this reason I am sending you prophets and wise men and experts in the law, some of whom you will kill and crucify, and some you will flog in your synagogues and pursue from town to town, so that on you will come all the righteous blood shed on the earth, from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. I tell you the truth, this generation will be held responsible for all these things. The killing of Christ is the ultimate hardening of Jerusalem's heart. And the Acts records with a sense of tragic irony how again and again Jerusalem returns as though addicted to this horrific sin of killing those God sends to save her. And this is precisely the thing that got St. Stephen into trouble. It is precisely this habit in Jerusalem that is the heart of Stephen's indictment against the city's leaders. He accuses them of rejecting God by crucifying the innocent and righteous Messiah, incurring rightly the judgment and vengeance of God. And yet he calls them in the midst of their guilt to repent, to entrust themselves to God in the hope that he will show mercy upon them and, and to all those who return to him. But it seems that repentance is beyond their imagination. And they do the only thing they seem able to do anymore, to plug their ears and to kill the prophet. But then something surprising happens in the story. Jesus appears and stands up in Stephen's hour of death. This is no random gesture. It is a formal, legal precedent. Standing in the context of the story serves to testify and to confirm Stephen's earlier accusation against the rulers of Jerusalem after the Jewish legal principle defined in Deuteronomy chapter 9, quote, one witness shall not rise against a man concerning any iniquity or sin that he commits. By the mouth of two or three witnesses, the matter shall be established. Jesus stands to ratify Stephen's testimony. He stands as witness to his witness, Stephen. And the testimony of the two establishes the guilt of Jerusalem. And so justice must come. God sees and God repays. For within a few decades, Jerusalem was utterly destroyed. The city paid the blood price for its killing of all the prophets and martyrs, according to Jesus' word. And yet, for all of this, 
Not every pattern of the Old Testament, every part of the pattern of the Old Testament persists. For all of his proper proclamations of judgment, at the height of the crucifixion, our Lord does not echo the words of Zechariah in calling upon God to avenge his innocent death. Instead, Jesus prays that God would forgive his persecutors. This act of redemptive love in the midst of horrific injustice embodies his earlier teaching in the Sermon on the Mount, quote, you have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemy and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be like your father in heaven. Jesus incarnates the patient and redemptive goodwill of God toward his people and to the world in spite of their many sins to the extent that he sees even in the enemies, in his enemies, the neighbor that God desires to save. In Stephen's martyrdom, this new pattern is established. Whereas the deacon, just like his Lord, pardons his persecutors in his hour of greatest suffering. He participates in the martyrdom of Christ, and so St. Stephen is received then into Jesus' glory. This does not mean that the earlier statements about justice that is coming on Jerusalem don't happen. God's patience never negates his justice. But Jesus' prayer for his enemies manifests the full character, reveals it, the full character of the righteous servant, to be the one who loves God and neighbor even while suffering death unjustly. St. Stephen's Day is a sober reminder that the world does not want Christmas because the world does not want Christ. The world wants to rule itself, and anyone who wants to rule themselves in any way will in that way refuse to bend the knee to King Jesus. The hard reminder of today's lessons is that the rejection of Jesus and his servants can and does begin among those who outwardly are the most given to the pursuit of religious righteousness. Prophets, it turns out, can be murdered in the courts of the temple, and the gospel can be rejected within the walls of the church. This is the ministry of Jesus and his church, nevertheless. As St. John writes in the last gospel, he was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own did not receive him. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become the children of God. Christmas is always a call to receive Jesus again as he has come in humility as Savior, as Christ as he comes this morning as the life of the church in the Eucharist, and Christ as he will come to stand as our Lord and judge on the last day. Christmas means, first, the love of God who entrusts his Son to the world, knowing what the world will do to him. But Christ comes to us nevertheless to be received. Here, in this place, on this altar this morning, for starters. But to receive Jesus always also means 
to invite the scorn of the world. To proclaim the Christmas feast is an indictment of the world's sense of self-sufficiency and security. And it will mean the more it is lived out, the experience of exile from the approval and comfort of that world. It must be so, for so it has been with all the faithful ones who have gone before us. He is born at this time who will call us to take up our cross and follow him. And to die with him is to be born into everlasting life and glory if in that hour for each of us we will look up. As Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. Amen.